All right, you turn. Jonah, chapter 1. We're still there. We're going to move quicker through Jonah 2. So don't worry, this will not be a one-year series on the book of Jonah. We're not going to go that slow. But uh, I went too fast when I preached this in Vero Beach, Florida. So I thought they were... I'm trying to follow the kind of... the movements of the text. The, the, the action and reaction that takes place within the story. So that explains why we're... This chapter goes a little slower uh, than the next chapter will go. So... Verses 8 through 16. I'm going to start in 7, though. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, And hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they made sacrifice, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, the holy history recorded here was written down for our instruction. These people are examples to us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure and idolatry. They remind us that you are faithful. Texts like this are one way that you guard us from such temptations. Instruct us now that we may enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Last week I introduced you to a ship... And the name of that ship was the Greyhound. And it was one that uh, after spending 18 months in the equatorial waters around Africa uh, had gone north into the Atlantic and there had been met by a very strong gale. That gale had damaged the ship such that when John Newton, its passenger, woke up, the water was already up to his bunk. 
It almost took his life in the early parts of the storm before the captain had asked for him and another to go back and get a, a knife. It's kind of a strange thing to think about in the midst of a storm. Hey, go get my knife that's in my desk. But people do strange things. And the other man moved more quickly than Newton did. And as he reached the desk, the water came in through a rush and this wave sucked the man out into the sea to his death. But the passenger, John Newton, was spared from that. The ship, as we talked about, was crippled. It was broken. But it did not sink. Because the, the cargo that they did not cast out, the beeswax as well as some of the timber, had soaked up some of the water and maintained buoyancy for the ship. And so you had this crippled ship, unable to sail, floating upon the Atlantic. Not sure where exactly they would end up. That in and of itself presented a problem, but there was a bigger problem that was at work because the food that they would want to eat on that slow drifting about upon the Atlantic had been swept into the sea by the waves. Stranded, floating, and starving, the Greyhound and its crew and passengers limped along in the North Atlantic. Sometimes deliverance doesn't come in the ways we expect. Sometimes deliverance doesn't come in the time that we expect. The storms that God sends in His, as we talked about, redemptive wrath can cripple, can slow progress, can drag on. Big idea this morning is that someone must die to satisfy God's redemptive wrath. If you're one of those people who writes down one of the notes, it's changed since I wrote it on Thursday. God, uh, someone must die to satisfy God's redemptive wrath. We see again that God sends storms, but we see that He sends them to bring sin to the surface. We get back into the story. The men had wanted to know on whose account, what God it is that has sent this storm upon them. What God has sent the storm that seeks to destroy, it seems, their little ship which threatened to break up between the waves and the wind. They wanted to know and so they cast lots and those lots, of course, came to Jonah, the passenger. And so there's these quick questions that sort of they, they almost pummel Jonah with. Uh, the, the, the author doesn't say this, but you can imagine that they're just like staccato, very quick. We, they wanted to know. They asked all of these questions in an attempt to unearth why it is their lives are now in peril. Imagine for a moment if Stephen Paddock had survived the press would not be on his brother's doorstep with strange interviews, but rather there would be many questions from the uh, investigators. Why did you do this? And every time he's moved from building to building, you can imagine that the press would be pressing in with questions on their microphones. Why did you do what you did? Why did you kill all those people? And it's something like that. They're probably grabbing Jonah. Why? Why have you done this? What God is it that has brought this destruction to our ship? And Jonah responds, I am a Hebrew. 
That's not how Hebrews or Jews referred to themselves. It's more the way the Gentiles referred to the Jews. And so here it is some cultural accommodation. Uh, Jonah uses the phraseology that they will understand so that they will know where he is from because it is not something that is obvious to them. They didn't look at him and go, Oh, you're one of those people. It was not obvious by how he was dressed. He was not like a um, Orthodox or Hasidic Jew in our day where you can look at them and immediately go, Hasidic Jew. He blended in. Okay? And so he has to tell them where he comes from. But he clarifies this. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And we see something of a confession of faith on the part of Jonah. He admits to the particular God that he worships and that this God is Yahweh. It's interesting that he says, I fear the Lord. That can be used in the sense of I worship the Lord. But we know from Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so we tend to expect more from someone who says that they fear the Lord, the God of heaven. We know from Exodus 20, something similar to what we heard in our call to worship. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that you may fear Him. Sorry, that the fear of Him may be be before you, that you may not sin. And so the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom is intended to result in this uh, fleeing from sin. And so we could say that when Jonah says, I fear the Lord, you don't fear Him much, do you, Jonah? (laughs) Because instead of that fear you know, keeping you away from sin, you ran headlong into it. You've ran from God because you feared His will. And so Jonah, while he confesses some things, does not confess everything. But I want us to stop here for a moment and realize something. That, that Jonah with his orthodoxy, if you gave Jonah, the prophet of God, a theological, theological exam, he would get all of those questions right. He had to know the covenant in order to apply the covenant to God's people in light of their circumstances. Jonah was orthodox, but his orthodoxy did not guarantee his right living, or orthopraxy. There's a warning to us here, I think. Good theology is important. It is necessary. But it is also insufficient in and of itself for right living. We need to not just intellectually know our doctrine, we have to believe our doctrine with our hearts and entrust ourselves to the God of that doctrine. And that's exactly what Jonah was refusing to do at that point in time. 
Do not rely on your doctrine for deliverance from your problems. You have to rely upon the God that is revealed in that doctrine. Don't, don't satisfy, in other words, don't, don't be satisfied, rather, with being able to answer the confession correctly. But there is meant to be a heart knowledge of that God. There is meant to be a trust in that God so that when He gives us instruction, we follow that instruction instead of heading in the other direction like Jonah did. That's what I'm saying. And if we tie this back to the Reformation, what we recognize is one of the things is, anyway, that Rome had a big disconnect between faith and life. And the average Roman Catholic had a bigger disconnect because they were basically told, believe what the church believes. There was this thing called implicit faith. And it basically means this. You don't have to study it yourself. What, what all you need to do is trust us, the priests and the bishops and the pope, that we believe what is right and you just do what we tell you to do. Nothing could be further from the truth. For if we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, it means we do apply our minds. We do want to understand what the Scriptures teach and what we are to believe. But we also move beyond that further into obedience because of these things. Now, when Jonah says that I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, he is being speaking in a, in a sense in a polemical fashion. He's speaking against the counterfeit gods that these men were crying out to, the the gods that had been unable to still the storm that raged, the still the storm that was raging in increasing fashion as we go through this text. That's the idea. It's getting bigger and worse. And it was bad enough that they've already thrown out, thrown the cargo over. They're in fear for their lives that they're praying to their gods and it keeps getting worse. Many of them, if they were Phoenicians, believed that Baal was the God of heaven. That Baal was the one who was the head of the gods. And so what Jonah is telling them is that it is not Baal who is the head of the gods. It is Yahweh Himself. He is the one who has made the heavens and the earth. He is one who owns everything that is in them. He is the Lord, not Baal. Yahweh rules it all. So there's a sense in which he's preaching some truth to them. Truth that he himself struggles to really believe. And normally when they spoke, he would talk about creation. Usually it's either heaven and earth or God created the land and the sea. The land and the sea. Why the land and the sea? Because the land is where you live. (laughs) But they're on the sea. And so he reverses it. He needs them to know that the, the, the sea that rages right now, the one who made it, the one who controls it, the one who rules it, that is the God that I fear not the gods that you worship in vain. It says that he feared Yahweh, but then it says that they feared greatly. 
That word great that we've seen a few times, the great wind, the great storm, great faith, right here. Jonah, not faith, but fear. Jonah had fear. They had a lot of fear of this particular God. And they cry out to him, what is it that you have done? Now, this is found, this sentence is found five times within the Old Testament. The first time we see it is Genesis chapter 4. And it always has to do not with a question, but it's more a moral evaluation. What have you done? We see it, for instance, when Cain uh, Cain has killed his brother Abel. God knows what Cain did, but he says, what have you done? It expresses moral outrage at the actions, the, the wicked actions of another person. Part of what's interesting here is that it, it says that he fled from the presence of the Lord. He told them that he had been fleeing from the presence of the Lord. So all of the dialogue that we get, just so that you know, is not exhaustive. It doesn't say everything that was, or it doesn't include everything that was said, because uh, this little parenthetical statement clues us in on that. So, But we don't know if he said, by the way, not only do I fear the Lord, I'm a prophet of the Lord. We don't know if he communicated that. We don't know if he communicated why he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that he made some form of admission. But let us not confuse this admission with repentance. Jonah acknowledges that he is the reason that this whole storm has come up. But he's not repenting of this fact yet. Let's get back to the greyhound for a moment. We mentioned the passenger, John Newton. John Newton was raised by his mother in a godly home, but she died when he was young. And one of the things that uh, was well known about Newton was that he was a blasphemous sort of fellow at this point in his life. And it was in the midst of the storm that this is coming up. This is becoming known. Uh, People are pointing it out to Newton of his own sin, something he recognized but did not yet turn from. Because repentance is a turning away from our sin. Repentance is, is therefore also a returning to God. And so it has that idea in the Hebrew of to turn. And you're turning from one thing to another. And so you turn from sin and you turn to God. Jonah here is not turning from anything. Jonah is just simply saying, I did it. There you have it. He's not repenting because Jonah at this point still has no intention of obeying the command of God. And so we see that God's redemptive wrath has revealed some of his sin, but it has not yet 
resulted in the desired repentance. Secondly, here's really the crux of it all. Sin requires sacrifice. This is the bottom line. This is really where Jonah brings us in a strange sort of way because they respond to, okay, you're this person who worships Yahweh. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? So there's a sense in which they're focused on themselves. Okay, what are we supposed to do so the storm quiets for us? Okay? They're not talking about what you, Jonah, should do. You, Jonah, who did what you shouldn't do. What, what, really the question is, Jonah, what are you supposed to be doing? Not necessarily what they are supposed to do. They don't call Jonah to repent. But that, and, and they actually just sort of seek a respite from the wrath of this foreign god. And Jonah's response to their question is rather interesting. I'm not sure I'd ever give this response. <laughs> Hurl me into the sea. God hurled the wind upon the sea to create the storm. The sailors in the midst of the storm hurled the cargo. And so there's a sense in which Jonah is saying, treat me like the useless cargo and toss me overboard. But there's that symmetry there about the hurling. Jonah knows a few things. As a prophet of God, he knows that sin requires sacrifice. He's familiar with the book of Leviticus. And part of what is going on here seems to be that he offers to be the sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. Now, there's a lot that the author is not telling us here. And so some commentators can get a little speculative when it comes to this stuff right here. For instance, Edmund Clowney thought that uh, Jonah realizes that God is going to use Assyria to judge the northern kingdom, Israel. And so he figures that if, that if he doesn't go to Nineveh, God will then judge Assyria so that they won't be able to judge uh, Israel. And so in a sense, he sees himself as a scapegoat for the protection of Israel. I'm not sure I buy Edmund on that one because it's kind of speculative, and I tend not to like speculation. Uh, Anyone who's been around here can gather. (laughs) Okay? Although you might agree as to what I think is speculation. Um, But he has this idea from Scripture, from Leviticus and other places, that sin requires sacrifice. We see the, the same thing in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. What do you get when you sin? You earn death. You merit death. 
We see as well, Hebrews 9, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jonah recognizes that if the, if the storm is to be stilled, there must be a sacrifice for his sin, and he offers to be the sacrifice. He didn't say, ah, I wish you hadn't have thrown that bull overboard or that goat that you were going to eat next week. Um, he says, Throw, hurl me overboard. But what's going on here with Jonah? Again, he's not repenting. He doesn't say, let's go back so I can go to Nineveh. He's wallowing in his guilt. He's assuming that God wants to destroy him as opposed to redeem or restore him. And some of us, when we sin, we feel that way too. That somehow God is now out to get us. That God no longer has a plan and purpose for us. That God wants to hurl us into the sea and destroy us. As opposed to one who wants to redeem and restore the people that he loves. Let us remember that Jonah also represents Israel. Not only was Jonah unfaithful, but Israel was unfaithful to God's call. And just as Jonah was deserving of death, so the nation of Israel was deserving of destruction. One of the things that happened while the greyhound was just kind of blown about by the winds, just kind of floating hither and yon for almost a month, and the men are starving, is that the captain at a couple of different points thought because of Newton's reputation and his experience of Newton as a troublesome man, decided that Newton might be the reason why we're in this problem. And there were a couple times that he threatened to cast John Newton overboard in the attempts to somehow appease God so that they might land on shore or be found by another ship before they all starved or died of thirst. We see Jonah who's willing to die for his own sin, but this Jonah points us to a sinless Jesus who is willing to die for other people's sins who is willing to be the one through whom eternal life is offered because he becomes the sin-bearer, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all of his people. Christ's blood cries out to all who will listen that instead of being punitive, God is merciful and God intends to restore His disobedient people. And so you as His people... When you're struggling, when you've sinned, you don't need to hear the voice of condemnation from the evil one. You need to hear the voice from the Spirit saying, come back, come back, because Christ has shed His blood for you. Come back. Repent. Be restored. Just as the prodigal son was restored. But these sailors not wanting His blood on their hands, did not hurl Him overboard just yet. But they rode hard. More literally, they dug hard. 
It's interesting. It's like they're digging a grave in the sea. They're digging hard with their oars. They're trying to get back uh, onto the shore. And so they're digging deep into the sea. But remember, God's intention is not simply a return to land. God's intention is the repentance of Jonah. And so we see that in their attempts to get back, the sea grows more and more tempestuous. tempestuous. The storm gets worse. (laughs) You thought it was bad before? Now it's really bad. Our attempts to make our life better in the midst of the storms of life often make our life worse. Boy, do I need to remember that. Friday night, I didn't sleep well. I was tossing something over my mind. Fear was starting to to grasp my soul and Part of me wanted to flee, and as I was picking weeds yesterday, I had that gospel conversation with myself that I cannot make decisions based on fear. But we're prone to do that. That's what they had done, and it only made things worse. Our attempts to make life better apart from faith in Christ and apart from repentance make our lives and the lives of those around us worse. Remember, it's not just Jonah. It's these other guys too. And so finally these men, realizing that all of their their struggle is getting them nowhere, they give up and they prayed for mercy. But in particular, they prayed to the Lord. They didn't pray to their own gods. They prayed to Jonah's God. But they prayed for mercy for themselves because they're about to toss a man overboard putting him to his death, though he has not received a trial. They are, in a sense, acting as vigilantes. And they know that is wrong. Even in their own time and culture, they knew that that was wrong. And they knew that they would be accountable for any blood that they shed. They were better non-Christians than Stephen Paddock was. He thought nothing of destroying people made in the image of God. These people were afraid of doing that. They may not have heard Genesis 9, but they knew it in their hearts that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For God made man in His own image. Why is it wrong to kill another human or to murder another human being? Because that is someone who is made in the image of God. And so when Stephen Paddock sat up there in the 32nd floor shooting his gun out the window, he was not just killing Republicans or Democrats or country music lovers. I'm not one of them, although I didn't mind the Johnny Cash yesterday. Okay? He's not killing men or women. He's killing the image of God. Because his fundamental problem is that he hates God. And so he's going to destroy what's in God's image. 
Unfortunately, my mind is sick and twisted, and so my mind goes back to the movie The Jerk. And as Steve, uh, as Navin Johnson realizes that the reason these cans are springing leaks is that there's some lunatic up in the, in the hillside firing a gun, and he goes, he hates these cans! The lunatics hate God and seek to destroy that which looks like God. Even though that's not what they could rationally put together, we don't always understand all that we do. Just ask your children the next time they do something really foolish. Why would you do that? I don't know. Even adults don't understand all that they do. But God sees the inside of the heart, and that's what it really gets down to. He hated God and thought nothing of destroying His image. They pray, unlike Mr. Paddock, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They affirm the sovereignty not of Baal, not of any of the other gods, but the sovereignty of the God of the Hebrews. They feel trapped by their circumstances that God has produced. But what we see here is Jonah is about to experience judgment at the hands of Gentiles. Just like Israel and then later Judah would experience judgment at the hands of Gentiles, Assyria and then Babylon. All pointing to the true Israelite Jesus Christ, the sinless and perfect one who would receive judgment at the hands of Gentiles as he was nailed to a Roman cross as the sin bearer for his people. This is not something that should strike us as strange. We see it in Deuteronomy 28 that this promise that breaking the covenant, they would be judged through the instrumentation of the Gentiles. We see this in Judges chapter 2, verse 3. Actually, we see it repeatedly throughout Judges. We see it in places like Isaiah 10, 5. And so these Gentiles pick up the prophet of God and hurl him into the sea. And Jonah sinks down. When you're a landlubber, you don't learn how to swim. This is not throw me over and I'll try to swim to land, to shore. This is throw me over so I'll sink into the deep to my death. And so Jonah who came down to Joppa, who went down to the ship, who went down into the hold of the ship, now goes down into the sea. We should be mindful of Jesus who came down from heaven. Who came down as a man. Who came down as a slave. Who came down in a criminal's death as we see in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus who continued to descend. Again, not for His own sin like Jonah, but for our salvation. So sin requires a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath, but not sinful Jonah, rather sinless Jesus. Let's bring this home a little more and be reminded that grace calls for a response to a faithful God. 
You see, when they hurled Jonah into this raging sea, the sea ceased from its raging. It's like the sea chose, made a decision. Oh, I'll stop now. God stopped the sea from its raging. It happened so quickly that there's, there's no coincidence here. But it's directly tied to the fact that Jonah was being hurled, presumably to his death, into the sea. And then we see some repetition again. The men feared the Lord exceedingly or greatly. Last week we read from Matthew. What happened when Jesus stilled the storm? The disciples feared greatly. Who is this man that even the winds obey him? So these men are sort of like the disciples of Jesus. They're overwhelmed with the reality of the, that this God is real. That this is not a, a fake God. I'm reminded of the account of uh, at least one agnostic who was in the crowd of concert goers in Vegas said, I'm no longer an agnostic. I believe in God. Now, I'm not sure he believes like I believe that, you know, the Trinity and all of that. But he realized that there's something more than meets the eye. So I'm not sure about these sailors, whether theirs was just, okay, we're adding this God of the Hebrews to our collection or pantheon of gods, or whether it was, we are replacing all of these lousy gods who have done us no good with the one God who delivered us. We're not sure which of these it is. But we see that God nonetheless was faithful to them, And he was faithful in his response to Jonah's unfaithfulness. You see, God was faithful to these faithless Gentiles. He was faithful by, first of all, using Jonah's sin to make himself known to them so that they can know that he really exists and that he's merciful. And that's really what grace is when we get down to it. Sola gratia. The reality that Jesus uses even our sin to bring us and others to saving faith. Because it's only by our sin that we experience the misery that prompts our repentance. It it brings the misery that calls us to cry out for mercy. And so here, it's the sin of one of God's people that results in the deliverance and crying out of God's not people, a Gentile, for mercy. We see again the connections of this with the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12. He is unwittingly a blessing to this part of the nations. Even by his sin. God does not only use your obedience, only use your faithfulness, but he is able to also use your unfaithfulness for his good purposes. 
And that should make you breathe a little better. How is this fear or worship expressed? Two ways that are mentioned in this text that I'm going to cover very quickly. And the first is that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. This seems to imply that they went on land and subsequently found a a place where Yahweh was worshipped and offered sacrifices. They may not have gone to Jerusalem because, unfortunately, there were many other places of worship throughout throughout Israel where they worshipped and offered sacrifices um, against the uh, commands of Scripture. But they worshipped. They sacrificed. And so gratitude for grace received includes sacrificial worship. It includes this giving of yourself to the one who saved. It no longer you know, requires the shedding of blood by, of a goat or a lamb or an ox. It really requires, as Paul says in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God does not want you to bring an animal because he's already provided his son, and therefore bring yourself, bring your life. I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. And so there should be great joy in that, not great hesitancy, because you know that you have been redeemed from the pit Secondly, they made vows. They bound themselves to future actions. We make vows today. Membership vows. In a couple weeks, I'm not going to be here. Stu's going to be here. And Stu gets the great blessing. Oh, man. Because the Fergs are going to become members of this church. And in the process of becoming members of this church, they're going to make vows about their future actions. They're going to make vows to seek the peace and the purity and the prosperity of this particular congregation. They're going to promise that they're going to offer their gifts to God and His people for the benefit of His people. And many of you have made similar vows. Some of you are considering making those vows. That is a great thing. Because when the going gets tough, we go for the easy stuff. And sometimes we need those vows to remember, I'm supposed to stick through it through thick and thin, just like marriage, you know? There's a book we've got on our book table right now on what is a healthy church member Someone said to me a couple weeks ago, this should be a book of the month. This is a very good book. It's not a very long book. Find it. Share it. Pass it around. Read it. Hopefully you'll be encouraged by it. And so it wasn't just coming to worship. It was vowing for future action. Now this whole story and the the, the ways in which these men are changed is going to anticipate the response that Jonah receives when he finally does get to Nineveh. Sorry, I gave the punchline of the whole story away, you know. But let me ask you this question. I know it's true of me. Why do we expect rejection with the gospel? Why do we act? Like, God isn't going to work. 
like God's not going to use these flimsy words we speak to bring people to faith in Christ. Why are we so afraid? I speak to myself. Jonah wasn't even trying and he's got these soldiers worshiping the Lord. Jonah's going to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want these people to repent. And God does so much more above what Jonah ever wanted or intended. Why are we so fearful and timid and withdrawn? Why? Boy, we need mercy. Our difficulties lead us as sinners to believe that God is somehow out to get us. For the Christian, our difficulties mean that God is rather calling us back, calling us to repentance, calling us to renewed experiences of His grace. And so a faithful God is calling unfaithful churches. He's calling unfaithful families. He's calling unfaithful individuals back into His plan and His purpose. He's the God who never gives up on His people. But rather, He's the God who continues to save His people by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I invite you, behold this loving God and worship Him with joy and reverence. And share Him with the people you meet. Let's pray. Grant Almighty God, that as you urge us daily to repentance, and, and each of us is also stung with the consciousness of his own sins, O oh, grant that we may not grow foolish in our vices, nor deceive ourselves with empty flatteries, but that each of us may, on the contrary, carefully examine his own life, and then with one mouth and heart confess that we're all guilty, not only of light offenses, but of such as deserve eternal death. And that no other relief remains for us but Your infinite mercy. And that we may seek to become partakers of that grace which is once offered to us by Your Son and is daily offered to us by His Gospel. That relying on Him as our mediator, we may not cease to entertain hope even in the midst of a thousand deaths until we be gathered into that blessed life which has been procured for us by the blood of Your only Son, Jesus the Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen.